0: We are going to uh, continue our look at uh, the minor prophets this morning in a series that we're calling God in the Ruins, and it's because uh, God selected a group of men that would warn the children of Israel in most cases um, that there was an impending doom coming if they didn't change their ways, if they didn't turn and repent. And uh, in some cases, he just told them that, well, it's already, the die's already been cast and this is what's going to happen, but that there would be a remnant that would be saved. And so we're going to look this morning at the prophet of Nahum. Uh, it is a little bit different in that it is not directed at Israel. It's not directed at Judah, it's, although the message, I believe, is primarily for those those Christians Jews that lived in in Judea. Uh, I believe that was the primary. I believe that this is a message that's directed at two groups of people. One is uh, the people that are about to be destroyed. And it's the Ninevites. And you remember that uh, from Yancey's lesson some time ago. um, That he talked about the uniqueness of the book of Jonah was that the message was not to Israel. This was not about them but this was uh, that uh, Jonah was sent to this city, Nineveh. It's a very large city. It's a pagan city. and he, he, But they were evil, and God called them to repent. And Jonah, remember, he didn't want to go. But finally, after being swallowed with the, by the, the great fish and thrown up, on, he finally repented and went to Nineveh, and he preached to them, and they did what he feared they would do. They repented, (laughs) and God spared them because what Jonah really wanted to happen is he wanted Nineveh to be destroyed. We're going to fast forward now to the prophet Nahum, and that destruction now has been pronounced. You know, it's too late to go back. there's, There's a point in life that it's too late to fix it, and that's what had happened here uh, with the same people that uh, had repented some time back. It was too late. And so uh, that's, that's what we're going to look at this morning. Uh, again, the Assyrian Empire was a very large empire that ruled the Middle East from about the 9th to the 7th centuries before Christ. So it was, a, it was an empire that started out up in that area of Nineveh but like a lot of like all empires do, they tend to expand and they conquer territory. and so their their empire would grow and they uh, conquered the Egyptians and all the land of uh, the, the Middle East and uh, they they conquered the, the, the twelve the ten tribes that were scattered to the north um, and ultimately they they went into uh, Uh, Jerusalem and and, well they didn't actually get into Jerusalem and that's that's kind of a key point to all this I guess Um, so I want you to consider this this is from the the New Testament the Apostle Paul uh, writes this or says this and he says he and he's referring to God that God has made from one blood every nation men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and boundaries Of their dwellings, so in a sense, God is or Paul is saying that God has chosen these nations that they would rule, and that they would have a defined area that they would be able to rule in. Now we know that uh, sometimes man gets other ideas, and so over a period of time, we'll see these empires that will expand. But we know that God's not pleased with all that. He may be patient with it for a while, but at some point. He's going to reign these empires in, and they're going to, be, and they're going to uh, pay for whatever, whatever uh, crimes that God deems that, that they are guilty of. And so I believe that God very much works in our world today in that same way, uh, that he'll give, he'll give nations room to run, but if they don't repent, there's probably a price that, that's to be paid for that. And so, uh, just to give you a timeline, about 760 before Christ, Jonah goes in and he warns Nineveh to repent, and they do repent, as we talked about. Uh, and But then, I want you to notice, it's about, what is that, 27 years later, that they begin this campaign into uh, the, ten, the northern part there, uh, above Judea, into that area where the the ten tribes were, were, had settled as, they, as the kingdom split into Samaria. And um, so they, they began to exile or remove those people, uh, those, the children of Israel, from that. And then about uh, 721 B.C., the city of Samaria. Samaria was the capital city of that land that was known as Samaria. And so it took them about three years. They surrounded the city. But uh, in uh, 718 B.C. They, they took that city. They also captured about 46 cities in Judah. Now think about this. This is this empire that it's taken over pretty well everything. And it's taken over actually 46 fortified cities of Judah. Now, about 665, between 665 and 615 B.C., Nahum prophesies about the destruction of Nineveh. And again, as we mentioned before, there is no call for repentance. The party is over. They had their chance, and they didn't take advantage of it, or they did take advantage of it momentarily, but they didn't stay with that course, and because of that, there is a destruction that's coming. And it's not very many years removed from that, that the Babylonians uh, went with, with other peoples as well, went into uh, the city of Nineveh and pretty much, well, completely wiped out the Assyrians. It was about 24, so this is about 612 BC. It was 24 hundred years before they even were able to extract any remains. When God pronounced destruction upon the Ninevites, he meant utter and total and complete annihilation and destruction. The Ninevites, the Assyrians were a brutal people. When they would go in and conquer these areas, they didn't just conquer them, but they would go in and torment them and make fun of the people and uh, and I'm not talking about calling them names. I'm talking about cut their legs off. I'm talking about poke sticks in their eyes and watch them walk around blind. I'm talking about horrible things like that. Uh, and, and mocking them and laughing at them while they're doing that. So I want to start with looking at uh, King Hezekiah in his reign. Uh, King Hezekiah was 25 years old when he began to <coughs> reign in Jerusalem so he was a king of the southern kingdom he was he's the king of Judah uh, and it, the scriptures tell us that he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord and it says that uh, he trusted the Lord God of Israel so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah nor were there any before him now think about that that is a That's a pretty strong statement to say that this king was more righteous than any before him or after him. We're talking about Solomon. We're talking about David. We're talking about all these guys. But this guy, he trusted in the Lord. He put his trust there. He didn't put his trust other places. And he put his trust in the Lord. And because of that, God blessed him even in this this horrible and difficult time. There was a king of, of uh, Assyria, and it was k- King uh, Sennacherib. And Sennacherib, as we've already mentioned, uh, he captured the ten tribes, and he also captured the 46 cities. Now, as they began to take over the area of, of Judea, um, King Hezekiah actually he, he sent a message to Sennacherib, and he said... Um, what, what can I do to pay you off? And he demanded a large amount of silver and a large amount of gold. And so uh, Hezekiah went into the temple and other parts of the treasury and got the resources together to pay him off. But like you find with a lot of leaders that have kings that are uh, kings of empires and they're expanding, uh, appeasement doesn't work. And so even the pa- payment of this guy was not enough to stop him and so he comes to Jerusalem and he, he sends his messenger, Sennacherib sends his messengers and say you just you know tell Hezekiah that uh, he just well surrendered because we're going to take Jerusalem. Well so Hezekiah goes before, the, he goes in the temple and he goes before God and he prays and then he receives a message from Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah and here's what it says. It says, Therefore, thus saith the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he will not come into this city, nor shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with shield, nor build a siege mount against it. A siege mount would be like a, um, you know, you had these walls that protected the city, and so they would begin to pile up dirt and things that would allow them to get on top of it and then cross over the wall, and he's saying... They won't even be able to build such a mount against the walls of Jerusalem. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return, and he shall not come into this city, saith the Lord. I will defend this city to save it for my my own name's sake and for my servant David's sake. And so he promises Hezekiah that the city of Jerusalem uh, would be spared. And we find out that as it came to pass on a certain night, that the angel of the Lord went out and he killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. Imagine that. You're an Assyrian and your empire is expanding and you're, you're maybe north of the city of Jerusalem and you go out of your camp and there is nothing but dead bodies. All of your brethren are laying out there dead. 185,000. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, he did about the only thing he could do. He departed and went away and returned home. And he remained at Nineveh. Now it came to pass as he was worshipping in the temple of Nishrod, his god, so he worships, he I guess he goes to his God and said, What happened here? What's going on? How did how did we lose all these people? So he goes to worship his God Nishrod and his sons, that his sons um, um a, um, a, a Dramelech and a Sherezer struck him down with a sword. So think about not only did he not only was he killed but he was killed by his own sons. And I'm betting that that God would have had him know that that was his sons that came in and did it. Remember that King David was embarrassed by Absalom his son. God used Absalom to embarrass David when he did wrong in God's sight. And I believe that this was part of the, not only was he killed, but he was humiliated by that destruction being at the hands of his very own sons. So the book of Nahum of, uh, is really just three chapters. In chapter 1, we learn about the nature of God. And I, I call him the judge here because he's pronouncing a judgment on the, these people. In chapter 2, he gives us the destruction of Nineveh. And in chapter 3, he gives us the end of the Assyrian Empire and really the humiliation of the Assyrian Empire. So unlike, you know, the story of Jonah is a lot about Jonah and his rebellion against God and him coming to terms with the fact that God had sent him on this mission that he didn't want to go on. We know very little about Nahum. It's, this is all we know about him. In, in verse 1, it says that the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkishite. Now, some people have surmised that Elkosh was his father. Others have said, no, that's a reference to a city. They can't even really say whether it was in Galilee, whether it was in Samaria, or whether it was in Judea, or whether it was on... Some people even supposed it was on the... Uh, East side of the the Jordan River, we just don't know, and I, I think that's I think that's significant because really, it's not important. Nahum and who he was is not important. The important part of this story is who God is, and I think again, chapter one I think is the most is by far the most important part of this. So first of all, let's look at the nature of the judge. It says. In verses 2 and 3, he says that God is jealous, and the Lord avenges, and the Lord avenges and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord has his ways. Now, if this were a description of you or I, think about that, it is... If you said, Matt is jealous, Matt avenges, Matt avenges and is furious, would that sound like it's very complimentary? Well, see, the problem with what we tend to do is we tend to, when you talk about God, God is a subset all his own. So when we talk about these characteristics, they're different when they apply to God. When, when I'm jealous or I'm vengeful or I'm furious, what am I doing? I'm, I'm defending my own pride or my own interest. I, it, it comes out of a selfish nature. When God does this, it's, it comes out of a righteous nature that is, a, that is the judge of the universe and is, is put in this position or is in this position to create a a world of righteousness. And so the rules are very different. It's it's a righteous thing for God to be jealous because He created and He sustained you. And for you to choose something else other than His will, He has the right to be upset about that and to do something about that. And so it's very different. Let, Let me give you, this is the closest analogy I could think about or that I could come up with, is think about a a court of law. Okay, for me, if if I were to get mad at someone and decided that they needed to be taken captive, if I went and got them and held them captive against their will for a period of time... Most people would say that's wrong. You shouldn't do that. That's, that's kidnapping. That's a crime in itself. So I can't do that. But if a court of law, if someone has committed a crime, if they've been lawfully arrested, if they have been tried according to the law and they've found, been found guilty by a jury, then they could be put in prison if the, if the crime was, was such that it called for that. So do you see how that's very different? That for me to do it is an act of my own selfishness. But for a court to do it, we consider that to be a necessary thing to have a a society of, of laws. Well, all the more God has the right to avenge, to be jealous and to be furious when His will is ignored says he is slow to anger he gives us room to repent but he will not acquit the wicked the lord will ultimately have his way he's that great judge that ultimately is going to decide what's right and what's wrong and he has a right to do that it goes on to say who can stand before his indignation who can endure the fierceness of his anger his fury is poured out like fire and and the rocks are thrown down by him the same token, he also has this, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the, in the day of trouble. He knows those that trust in him. So, and here's another thing about God, is he doesn't have to suspend one part of his nature to express another part. He can still be righteous and loving and good and furious and vengeful and jealous in the same moment I can't do that I've got to suspend one to be another but God doesn't have to do that he can be all those things at the same time and for him to not to do that would make him unrighteous because he's in charge of the universe and so he has responsibilities to that universe that you and I do not have it's his creation. So his judgment upon the Assyrians, it says, but with an overflowing flood he will make an utter end of its place, and darkness will pursue his enemies. What do you conspire against the Lord? He will make an utter end of it. Affliction will not rise up a second time. There's no returning from that. He's saying that that the children of uh, Judah Judah does not have to worry about a second rising up of this empire. It's not going to happen. That when God puts an empire down, it's down. It's not coming back. I thought about uh, the destruction of, uh, like if you had an atomic bomb go off and there was nuclear waste, it would be a number of years uh, before that would even be a place that people could live again because of the destruction there. Again, 2,400 years uh, before they found any kind of remains from the destruction there uh, at Nineveh. It says from this is in chapter 1 and verse number 11, uh, From you comes one, forth one who plots evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor, this is in reference to that king Sennacherib and so what he was trying to do. And listen, just listen to what he said. Sennacherib, he sends a messenger and the message goes to Hezekiah and it says, Thus you shall speak to Hezekiah king of Judah, saying, Now listen to the arrogance of this. Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you, in uh, saying, Jerusalem shall not be given into the hands of Assyria. Look, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands by utterly destroying them. And shall you be delivered? You see the arrogance of this guy? Here's one of the, one of the common uh, thoughts of the day was when a country attacked and took over another country, the idea was that you would that, that your gods would capture their gods and their gods would then serve your gods. That was, the, that was the, since they were making all these gods up anyway, I guess you can make up your own rules. So uh, that was their rule. That's what they said. And I believe that God is rebelling against that and saying, don't even think that. That that's, that's, not, that's not happening here. That I'm not serving your gods. Your gods don't even exist. But this is this guy saying, Hey, don't think your God can can deliver you, because all these other nations they have called on their gods, and none of them delivered them. And so here we are. So again, I I said that I believe this message is, is sent to two different groups of people. First, the Assyrians as a judgment. Again, I think about a court of law. You have a court of law. And the judge gets the verdict, and they read the verdict. Uh, The 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 foreman of the jury reads the verdict in front of. And so, there's two groups of people. There is there's the defendant. There's the person that's being tried, and they're receiving the judgment. But also, usually there's the family of those of the victim, or the victims themselves, or are in attendance, and they hear this because they're interested in this judgment. And so, to the Assyrians. He says this, The Lord has given a commandment concerning you. Your name shall be uh, perpetrated no longer. Out of the house of your gods I will cut off the carved image and the molded image. I will dig your grave, for you are vile. To Judah he says this, Behold on the mountains uh, to the feet of him who brings good tidings, who proclaims peace. O Judah, keep your appointed feast, perform your vows, for the wicked one shall no more pass through you. He is utterly cut, cut, cut off. So there is an assurance here to the children of Judah and that remnant that's going to be saved that they, uh, that they can return to their relationship with God and know that the Assyrians will not rise up again and that this this. Sentence is pronounced upon uh, Assyria. So in chapters two and three, again, it's really just a a unfolding of the vision, and I, I consider I look, as you read this, it's very poetic, and it is it is Nahum's vision of what he sees as the city of Nineveh is utterly destroyed. He starts out kind of by mocking them here. He who scatters has come up before your face. Man the fort, watch the road, strengthen your flanks, fortify your, uh, your power mightily. It's almost get ready for this battle, knowing you can't really win. <laughs> you as well go back and lay down because it's not going to matter. But he kind of taunts him here. For the Lord will restore the excellence of Jacob like the excellence of Israel for the emptiers have emptied out and ruined the vine branches. When they would go in and destroy these cities, they would take all the gold and all the silver and everything of any value with them. They would empty those cities out and leave nothing of any value left. I believe this, vine, this ruining the vine branches, I believe this has to do with the ten tribes uh, that were sc- scattered about by the Assyrians and and they lost any identity of the, of the nation that they came from. They were scattered about in the area of Samaria, and there was no racial or uh, uh, national identity any longer amongst these people. And so I believe that's an allusion to that. The chariots raged in the street. They jostle one another in, 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 the, in the broad roads, they seem like torches. They run like lightning. It is decreed he shall or she shall be led away captive. She shall be brought up. Though Nineveh of old was like a pool of water, think about uh, you know in olden times, getting water, your daily needs of water was a big deal. It's not ubiquitous like it is. You can go in there and just turn the faucet on. It's not like it wasn't like that for them, and so for a city to be described as a pool of water, be like you could walk anywhere and you could get water. That's that's a a great convenience for them. So although it was like a pool of water, now now they flee away. Halt, halt! They cry, but no one turns back. And so then now we return back to the uh, to. I can hear Nahum is is listening to what's being said, and so the Babylonians, as they come in, are saying, take spoil of silver, take spoil of gold. There's no end of treasure, because they had all this treasure they had amassed from all these other peoples that they had conquered. Of wealth of every desirable prize, she is empty, desolate, waste. The hearts melt and the knees shake. Much pain is in every side and all their faces are drained of color. I'm sure that when this happened, it happened as Nahum described it quickly and brutally and totally. And the people that sat and watched it and saw it happen to their city that they thought would never, ever be destroyed, and they found out very differently as it, because they didn't listen to what God said. Behold, I am against you, saith the Lord of hosts. I will burn your chariots in smoke, and and the sword uh, shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall be heard no more. It's a bad thing when when the Lord says, I'm against you. And he was against the Assyrians, and there was no hope. Woe unto the bloody city! It is full of lies and robbery. Its victims never depart. The noise of the whip, the noise of the rattling wheels, of galloping horses, of clattering chariots, the horsemen charge with bright swords and glittering spear. There is a great multitude of slain, a great number of bodies, countless corpses. They stumble over the corpses. So again, very... Uh, you can imagine the image of that, that horrible scene that it was too late. Behold, I'm against you, saith the Lord of hosts. I will, now this is where it gets to the part of, it goes from destruction to embarrassment. So not only am I going to en- destroy you, I'm going to embarrass you at the same time. I will lift up your skirts over your face so it's like you're exposed. Think about if you know you took a, if a lady that was wearing a skirt and they lifted it up over their face and you could see them. Well, that, that would be an embarrassment. I will show the nations your nakedness and the kingdoms your shame. I will cast abominable filth upon you, make you vile, and make you a spectacle. And it should come to pass that all who look upon you will flee from you and say, Nineveh is laid to waste. Who will bemoan her? Nobody, because everybody hated them. They had, not only did God hate them, but all the other nations around them had hate them because of the way that they had treated them. Who will bemoan her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? So again, that's not every Verse. It's three chapters. You can, you can read it in 10 minutes, get every verse, but I tried to give you a feel or a sense of, of, of what it says. So let's just look at some lessons that may apply to you and me. Because ultimately, you go, yeah, this is interesting history, but if it doesn't apply to you and me, why does it matter? Here's why it matters never challenge the sovereignty of god that's the first lesson i have now somebody's probably thinking well i would never do that and i would submit to you that we probably do that regularly when we have another god that we put up on a pedestal it may be the god of money maybe the god of wealth it may be the god of entertainment it may be the god of sports Maybe the God of the NFL, it may be anything that we put above God, you are challenging the sovereignty of God. Sovereignty means supreme power. There's no power above it. And so if you in your life are putting something else above it, we've talked about this before, but idolatry is alive and well in this century. And I would submit to you that probably as God looks at that, He sees that as a challenge to His sovereignty. Don't be guilty of that. So what happened in Nineveh between Jonah and Nahum? Talk to your children. They heard the first time when Jonah went there, they heard him. And they repented. But that change didn't stick. And so... Talk to your children so that they know, and that is passed down. Repentance is more of a state of being and not just a one-time event. You know, there's lots of people that hear something and they're moved. They have a passion of the moment and they decide, yes, I need to fix my life and I'm going to change, and I'm going to repent and then... Three days later, they're right back out there doing the same stuff that they... We've probably all been guilty of that. Every one of us has probably been guilty of that. We're moved by something we read or we hear, and then three days later, we forget about that, and we're on to, you know, back to life. So repentance is something that's a continual state. There's great mercy. God is slow to anger, slow to wrath. And there's great mercy before the judgment, just like there was with Nineveh. But once the judgment comes in, that's it. There's no more mercy. And that God will avenge all wrong. That's both a comfort and a warning. Because if God's nature is to punish wrongdoing we've got to be sure that we get on and stay on his side and not drift to the other side or we could be part of that you know i think of um, there's a lot of times that i'll see something that'll make me angry and uh, i would think that well if i were in that spot i would want to get revenge you know you see something on the news and someone did something horrible to somebody else and you'd think, you know, if, if that guy got, went in there and did that to my family or if that guy did that to me, then I, I, I'd, I'd hunt them down and kill them like the dog they are. That's, 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 what you, that's what you want to do. But we don't have to do that. God will avenge wrong. And when we try to step in and do it, we're saying, I don't trust God to make it right. And instead of God making it right, I'm going to make it right. Again, I think that probably goes back to point number one. We're, we're, that's a thread on his sovereignty. So, I'll just reference this, book, this uh, passage in 2 Thessalonians. Because I think it's appropriate. He says is that he will take revenge on those who refuse to acknowledge God and on those who refuse to respond to the good news about our Lord Jesus. They will pay the penalty by being destroyed forever, by being separated from the Lord's presence and from His glorious power. God is ultimately going to be the judge, and He has the right to be the judge. And because of His nature, He can't but be that righteous judge. He's not going to be able to look at you and I and go, you know, he was a pretty good old boy. He didn't really do what what I asked him to do, but that's not how God works. God's nature is such that his word is what he means, and he's going to avenge those that disobey it. He did that with the Assyrians in brutal fashions. He used the Babylonians to do that. And he'll destroy any in this world that are not obedient to him. So I would encourage you to examine yourself. To see if if God is sovereign in your life. And to put him there and keep him there as he needs to be. We'll offer a song of invitation. We don't know the hearts of those in the audience. And if we can help you in any way, we would ask you to come as we stand and sing together.